Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. A lot of us in the historians community were surprised by the outcome of the 2016 presidential election as we watched it unfold in real time. Not necessarily just who won, although some of us were deeply disappointed by the results, but who voted in what ways. One thing that baldly stands out from Donald Trump's victory in the Electoral College was his success with most facets of American Christianity. 81% of white evangelical Christians ended up supporting Donald Trump. 58% of Protestants as a whole, over half of Catholics, although the data on that is a little all over the place. Hillary Clinton, in contrast, did better with black and Hispanic Christians and non-Christian faiths. And she did great among voters who professed no religious faith at all, 68%. Those are the numbers, but where do they come from? What is the story, the history behind them? While today press coverage treats Christianity's alignment with political conservatism as a foregone conclusion, there is a larger milieu of liberal and progressive activism with Christian social justice that we'd like to explore a bit in our podcast today. I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Mark Lemke. And we're your historians for this episode of DIG. So today, we are joined by Mark A. Lemke, who has just written a book on this very topic uh, called My Brother's Keeper, George McGovern in Progressive Christianity, which is published by the University of Massachusetts Press. Mark actually got his PhD at the University at Buffalo, just like me and Sarah, uh, although he graduated when we were still early in the program. He currently teaches for UB's campus in Singapore. Um, And not everyone here in Buffalo knows it, but UB does have a program running there serving about 1,300 students from across South and Southeast Asia. So thank you for joining us, Mark. Oh, thanks. I'm delighted to be here. April. And I think it's uh, great that we have some UB historians using their degrees in interesting ways and reaching out to a wider audience. Christianity goes through something of a revival during the years after World War II. Church attendance and church membership were consistently at some of the highest rates in American history as young people returned from the war, got married, and started families. And most Christians belonged to one of three broad categories, Catholic, mainline Protestant, or Evangelical Protestant. As categories go, Catholics are fairly self-explanatory. The difference between mainliner and Evangelical Protestants, though, is a little trickier. The split between them isn't primordial or anything, but it comes from the turn of the century. 
At that time, there were growing debates about the role of science and modernity in faith. What do you do with evolution? What about new scholarship that studies the Bible as a text and uses literary theory to argue that, say, the book of Isaiah was written over many centuries by multiple authors? The main line usually agreed to embrace modern science and try to reconcile their faith with the spirit of scientific inquiry. Evangelicals generally rejected that view. To them it was a matter of trusting the Bible's teachings and what appeared to them as its plain meaning. There's that old bumper sticker, the Bible says it, I believe it, case closed. <laughs> this division kind of hit a boiling point with the Scopes trial, where a Tennessee school teacher had to defend his teaching of evolutionary theory in the classroom, when it was illegal to do so. Mainliners viewed the trial's humiliation of fundamentalism as a triumph. Evangelicals reacted by retreating from much of public life, at least until the rise of the religious right. And at the same time, there's more to the story than just the theology and just the beliefs. There's a growing social and cultural divide between these two factions. Evangelicals tended to be less wealthy, less educated, less cosmopolitan. The mainline controlled many of the nation's oldest and most prestigious churches, Presbyterians, Methodists, Episcopalian, United Church of Christ. The historian David Hollinger nailed the social distinctions when he said that, quote, if you were in charge of something big before 1960, chances are you grew up in a white Protestant milieu, end quote. I think of it as the difference between Ned Flanders and <laughs> Reverend Lovejoy, if you happen to follow The Simpsons, and why wouldn't you? Of course. Lovejoy is a character of this milquetoast mainline pastor, and Flanders is a character of a zealous evangelical layman. Lovejoy is sincere, but he practices his faith in a somewhat formulaic, ritualistic, maybe even uninspiring way. Flanders doesn't have Lovejoy's intellectual verve, but his religious life is vibrant. He wants to proselytize. He believes that heaven and hell are realities. He thinks the earth is only a few thousand years old. Or to use real-life figures, Billy Graham is a classic evangelical, charismatic, somewhat full of fire and brimstone. Christianity mm -hmm. is the only way. The Bible is God's truth. Sentiments Graham expresses in this clip. But the Bible says, after the world with all its wisdom tried to find God and failed, God was pleased by the apparent foolishness of the good news of Jesus to save those who accepted it. Because when you begin by accepting the saving power of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you will know God. And the wisdom of this world will be unmasked to reveal a sermon by Satan. And so on. Fred Rogers from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, uh, and people forget he was a Presbyterian minister. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Um, is more like the classic mainliner. Gentler, less doctrinal, less confrontational. So religion, of course, had a big role to play in the, as the 1960s unfolded, particularly in the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King Jr. was a Baptist minister, which is something we probably all know, and the church provided much of the institutional support, the meeting places, and the spiritual energy that sustained the movement. But a common mistake is limiting our understanding of religion in the freedom struggle to black Americans. Plenty of white pastors, usually from outside the South, joined the cause as well. 
To give just one example, a black Methodist bishop, Charles Golden, and a white Methodist bishop, James Matthews, attempted to integrate an all-white Jackson, Mississippi church by attending an Easter Sunday service together in 1964. Both men were turned away at the door. And their experiences in the civil rights movement gave these mainline pastors a strong affinity for the prophetic element of Christian teaching. Not prophetic in the sense of predicting the future, like with a crystal ball, but of God delivering a message that comforts the marginalized and sternly rebukes their oppressors. That kind of righteous anger you see in the Old Testament books like Amos and Ezekiel and kind of the more unfashionable parts of the Old Testament. <laughs> Now, that kind of language was in black churches for decades, but the white mainline is introduced to it largely through that civil rights movement. And the civil rights movement is actually a really good segue into some of the political changes that are also happening at the time. In 1964, Lyndon Johnson won a landslide election. I have come today from the turmoil of your capital to the tranquility of your campus to speak about the future of your country. His opponent, Barry Goldwater of Arizona, was an avowed conservative, and at first it is thought that his defeat signaled a disaster uh, for the conservative movement in America. In the years that followed, a docket of liberal legislation was passed, from Medicare to the public broadcasting system being created to some of the earliest environmental legislation. But ultimately, it was the issue of the Vietnam War that shadowed the Johnson presidency. And into this comes George McGovern, one of the chief political opponents of the Vietnam War, which ties in nicely with our recent episode, actually, on the Buffalo Nine and conscientious dissent against the Vietnam War. George McGovern was born in 1922 in South Dakota, and his father was a Wesleyan evangelical pastor. So he grew up in an environment where expectations were high as a minister's son. The Wesleyans emphasized projecting holiness, and in that way, working to fix up a broken world. But George wasn't especially religious or devout until young adulthood. He served in World War II as a bomber pilot, and the experience fundamentally changes him. McGovern saw fellow pilots die. He saw the poverty and homelessness uh, and the refugee crisis the war had caused. At one point, someone on his crew had accidentally loosed a live bomb from the plane at the wrong moment. And so George, you know, miles high in the sky, has to watch as it helplessly uh, lands uh, on a farmhouse in Austria and just shatters it, destroys it to smithereens. So he was discharged from the service, went back to college at Dakota Wesleyan, uh, also in South Dakota and tried to process all of this carnage and inhumanity he'd seen. Ultimately, his professors there introduce him to the social gospel, a school of theology that dominated mainline circles in the early 20th century. Shaler Matthews, a theologian who was part of the social gospel movement, described it as the, quote, the application of the teaching of Jesus in the total message of the Christian salvation to society, the economic life, and social institutions, end quote. So what this meant was that Christianity was more than just a creed of things that you believed. Christians shouldn't just try to save individual souls, but the whole of society. It understood sin as being collective rather than individual. 
And if a culture neglects its poor or fails to address prostitution or hunger, it is then committing a sin writ large. So practicing Christianity in this uh, social gospel theology um, meant to these men and women achieving social justice. And they were fond of reciting the Lord's Prayer with that crucial line, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So they really want to make the earth more closely resemble the peace and the justice of heaven as it exists as an ideal. And as a result of this, McGovern becomes a great devotee of the social gospel. He believes fundamentally that we all owe each other something, that we are our brother's keeper or our sister's keeper. Uh, kind of like an anti-libertarianism in the mm. sense that we're all invested in one another. Mm -hmm. And it so transforms him that he decides to become a minister, but part of the Methodist mainline rather than his childhood. What? Evangelicalism. Yeah. McGovern was a minister? He was, uh, in a way. He didn't finish his training, but uh, he studied for about 18 months at Garrett Theological Seminary outside of Chicago in Evanston. And uh, the school there very much stressed a kind of ministry that understood economics and social issues and how poverty endured. And so for most of those 18 months, he was put in charge of a small congregation, leading services, doing baptisms, comforting the sick, the usual uh, ministerial rounds, as it were. Which is, of course, very kind of unusual for a politician. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's true. Um, but McGovern left the seminary, ultimately. Oh. Uh, he hated the rituals of being a pastor. Uh, the only element he really enjoyed was giving the Sunday sermon, imparting <laughs> a kind of teaching. That's a very politician's uh, yeah, way of making, doing things. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, speech-making. So instead he got, you're not going to believe this, a PhD in history. <laughs> and that's really where a lot of McGovern's liberalism comes from. Uh, the progressive school of history was still big at that time and tended to stress the people versus the interests. If I can make a short aside here. Of course. Um, McGovern actually had some of the same professors in grad school that some of our professors had. No way. At UB. Yeah, oh his gosh. dissertation advisor was a fellow named Arthur Link. Okay. And uh, McGovern got his degree at Northwestern, mm -hmm. uh, but he was ultimately in Princeton by the 60s. So all of our Princeton faculty, David Gerber, Michael Frisch, oh, wow. uh, had some of the same professors I can as George McGovern. I can see the parallels yeah. because they're also very, you know, I mean, obviously they were part of the Buffalo Nine Exactly protests. right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So that's really where a lot of McGovern's liberalism comes from, I think. The progressive school of history that was very big at that time, uh, if you know your historiography. Mm -hmm. um, and it tended to stress the people versus the interests. And when he moves back to South Dakota, uh, he begins to see the Democratic Party as the best vessel for the people. Uh, but there's just one problem. There really aren't any Democrats in South Dakota. <laughs> so he has to build the party from the grassroots up. And that training helped him in his campaign for the presidency. Uh, he has to drive across the state, give speeches, solicit donations, and ultimately, he was narrowly elected one of the state senators in 1962. And so at that point, Vietnam was hardly a blip on the national radar. Uh, it was only with the attack on the Gulf of Tonkin in 1964, two years after McGovern was elected, that the war escalated and the number of draftees increased and the commitment to keeping South Vietnam from communism became a priority. 
And McGovern actually voted for the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. Only two senators voted against it. And he always viewed that as the biggest mistake he made in his career. His social gospel views and his training as a historian made him reluctant to think that the U.S. could just prop up uh, the unpopular Diem regime in Vietnam and its successors. When he visited Vietnam just a few years later, he was appalled, uh, really shaken to the core by what he saw. Entire villages destroyed, the wounded overrunning hospitals to the point where there just isn't room enough inside for everyone. He saw one child who was so heavily and thoroughly bandaged he couldn't tell what side was the front of the child, and uh, it's that moral revulsion of the war, one that I think was shared by many churchmen, that led him to run for president to end the carnage, uh, that which affected both the Vietnamese and the American. McGovern's presidential campaign was a bit different from others at the time. In 1968, the Democrats' convention was a train wreck. <laughs> Sounds kind of uh, eerily familiar. Indeed. Uh, the party met in Chicago, reeling from the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, John JFK's younger brother. Um, more than that, the party was deeply divided between its regulars and its anti-war wing. Anti-war protesters took to the streets, and ultimately violence broke out between them and the police. Hubert Humphrey emerged from the convention with the nomination, even though he didn't even compete in a single primary. And that probably seems a bit odd, uh, especially for us today, um, but prior to 1972, primary elections were often considered beauty contests in the sense that um, they were superficial for a, can a candidate, but ultimately not that helpful in winning your party's nomination. Just sort of, you would parade out there on stage and, and shake your tail feathers or whatever and <laughs> try and drum up some public interest. But most state delegations to a national convention were handpicked by political bosses and usually voted according to his wishes. After that disaster in 1968, McGovern was part of a commission that changed the primaries into more or less what they are today, um, binding contests to secure delegates for the national convention. And that changes the way people run for president. So now in order to win the primaries and uh, consequently the nomination, he had to get a grassroots army going. Mm -hmm. So lots of those people were young, collegiate, anti-war activists. And your listeners uh, may find that that's not unlike those Buffalo students in your uh, Buffalo Nine podcast. Uh, but a surprising number of his supporters were religious leaders hmm. and religious activists, all campaigning for one of the most leftist senators in the entire country. Oh. So they share his understanding of the Vietnam War as a moral problem that weighed against America's conscience. One of those religious activists was uh, probably the most fascinating man I met during my research. Uh, his name uh, is James Armstrong, and he was one of McGovern's closest friends, but he was also a pretty important religious leader in the 60s and 70s. It's a shame in some ways that uh, he's so obscure. Um, when we met uh, and did an interview together, uh, I was astounded by the stories he could weave. He uh, drove across Pennsylvania with Jimmy Carter. Uh, he went golfing with Billy Graham. He cruised around Havana with Fidel Castro at one point. Oh my he negotiated the standoff at Wounded Knee in 1973. 
Um, he comforted Fred Rogers on his deathbed. He's basically the most interesting man in the world. Yeah, he, he is. He even looks a little bit like that guy with a beard. And, uh, you know, I don't always endorse presidential candidates. Now, Armstrong was the Methodist bishop of the Dakotas at that time, and he decided to use his considerable clout to encourage other clergymen to come out and openly endorse McGovern, which just wasn't very common back hmm. in those days. So, ultimately, he forms a group called Religious Leaders for McGovern, and a lot of names that were very prominent back then joined, even if they aren't all that well remembered today. So. Uh, for example, there was Harvey Cox, whose book, The Secular City, is still required reading in most seminaries. Hmm. Uh, Abraham Heschel was probably the most famous rabbi in America at that time. Uh, there was William Sloan Coffin Jr., uh, an Episcopalian leader who was notorious for aiding draft resistors. And Armstrong often goes beyond mere endorsement. He gave advice to the campaign, he wrote to opponents in the party urging them to drop out oh. to give uh, McGovern a better chance. Uh, he suggested names of young Methodists who could work on the campaign. He was very active. That's intense. And, of course, all that did not go over well with the Dakota Methodists. Armstrong wrote about this dilemma once, saying, quote, The pastoral role dare not be minimized, but anything less than prophetic witness is sub-Christian. End quote. Especially in the suburbs, people went to church to be reassured, to hear a lesson of the Bible, and sometimes it seemed like their church leaders were more interested in faraway causes, like helping Cesar Chavez organize or helping to integrate the South. Yeah, and I, I found one letter to a religious editor during my research that gets to the point very nicely. Uh, it says, I used to go to church and the preacher would talk about God, Jesus, and the Bible. Now he tells me why I shouldn't buy grapes, end quote. So lots of historians like Jefferson Cowie uh, like talking about this working class resentment during that era. Uh, and that's usually taken to mean their opposition to busing or quotas or affirmative action. But there's a spiritual element to that as well. Uh, many mainline Christians felt a degree of pastoral neglect and there was increasingly a division between seminary-educated pastors with extensive training um, on social issues on one hand, and quite literally, in this case, layman's issues on the other. And this religious disillusionment among lower-middle-class Americans was mirroring changes taking place politically during that era. Working-class voters were moving away from the Democratic Party in pretty strong numbers. McGovern did terribly with blue-collar voters. He wasn't even endorsed by the AFL-CIO. One of our professors here at UB, David Gerber, was part of this large army of grassroots volunteers trying to help McGovern out here in Buffalo. And he spent part of 1972 as a new professor at UB knocking on doors in Polish, Italian, and Czech neighborhoods in the city. He had his work cut out for him. People in those precincts just, they hated McGovern. Um, Time Magazine had a great quote about these demographics. They, they said, they know God is a Democrat, but this year they're voting for Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and McGovern's failure to connect with these voters has, I think, a lot to do with something that people who study faith in public life will usually call civil religion. It's basically just using religious language to give an aura of blessing or sanctification 
to a political program. So whenever a president ends a speech with God bless America, they're really just employing civil religion to their ends. President Nixon's approach is what the religion historian Martin Marty calls priestly civil religion. Nixon would act like a priest going through the motions, the rituals, say the right reassuring things. McGovern's instincts, and I think there's a lot of his evangelical childhood showing up here, falls under prophetic civil religion. It looks at how America has fallen short, and it urges it to come back into the fold like one of those Old Testament prophets denouncing the malice or the backsliding of ancient Israel. If you look at his speech to the Democratic Convention of that year in 1972, it's littered with these kinds of callbacks. There's that refrain, come home, America. He wasn't telling America that they were uniquely blessed or that their faith will be rewarded. He was telling the voting public that they had gone astray in ignoring the needy, in allowing racism to endure, uh, in voting for Nixon in some ways. So some of the lines from that speech are really striking. At one point he says, From military spending so wasteful that it weakens our nation, come home, America. That almost reminds me of Reverend Jeremiah Wright. Mm -hmm. Maybe some of our listeners will remember the 2008 primary elections when then-Senator Obama's pastor was taken to task for using religious language that rebuked his country. There was goddamn America, and with respect to the threat of ter terrorism, America's chickens are coming home to roost, like, that we are, we are at fault here. That violence breeds violence. Yeah. Wright's ideas were rooted in the black experience. As many of our listeners know, during the 1960s, a number of movements began practicing what would become known as identity politics. Believing that the personal is the political, Many of these movements of marginalized or historically oppressed groups organized partly to gain a sense of pride in themselves and political equality for their particular group. Second wave feminism, Chicano activism, the American Indian movement, and the early gay rights movement were all facets of this larger trend. And McGovern's sense of the social gospel led him to draw the circle wider, to give these groups a voice. In 68, he pushed for changes that forced the Democratic Party to have conventions with fairer, more proportionate numbers of female delegates, younger delegates, delegates who belonged to a racial minority. 1972 was really the first time that uh, there was a sizable feminist block of voters, or even a block of gay voters, and almost all of them were for McGovern. And this made many of those hard hats, the stereotypical blue-collar union people, feel like McGovern wasn't their champion any longer, and that Democrats were maybe not their champion any longer. For decades before McGovern's run, urban, working-class whites like those David Gerber had met were the bedrock of mm. the Democratic Party. Right. Many of them, however, felt like liberals had turned their backs to them in the late 1960s and early 1970s. That prophetic strand McGovern latched onto, championing the oppressed, the marginalized, for McGovern, Vietnamese peasants who had lost their village, 
were the marginalized. Mm. People stuck in ghettos were the marginalized. Kids who couldn't afford a school lunch were the marginalized. That's where his social gospel training had led him, and that's how it influenced his politics. But the key is that those blue-collar workers, the hard hats, uh, saw themselves as the marginalized. Mm. And they felt ignored and hard done by. When Nixon talked about his silent majority of hard-working Americans whose voices were drowned out by shrill hippies protesting the troops in Vietnam, they identify with that language. They respond to that language. So obviously McGovern lost that election. Otherwise, you'd probably remember President <laughs> McGovern. Um, he ended up with only 39% of the popular vote, which is pretty abysmal. That's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he barely carried Democratic bastions like New York City or, for that matter, Buffalo. Mm -hmm. um, he only won one state, Massachusetts, plus the District of Columbia. And he even really pathetically lost his home state of South Dakota. Yeah, shades of Al Gore there, losing your yeah. home state. Oh, God, that must have been a real punch yeah, in my gut. I know. It's the first time in the party's history that a Democratic candidate failed to win a single Southern state. And what's more is that the loss was McGovern's alone. Democrats lost only a small handful of seats in the House and actually gained two seats in the Senate. And one of those Democrats first elected that year, by the way, was our buddy Joe Biden. So <laughs> handsome. Um, so McGovern soon realized that the voting public didn't reject his party. It just rejected him and his message. Exactly. If I can share one small story. Uh, when I first interviewed McGovern, it was just a few weeks after Joe Biden had been elected, uh, or not elected, or, uh, but uh, nominated as vice president, oh chosen. Gosh. And since they had served together in the Senate, I asked McGovern what his thoughts were on Joe Biden. And he, he thought and he furrowed his brow for a little bit. And he said, well, I, I thought he might be a good vice president of a local chamber of commerce or something. <laughs> I, I don't think he was very impressed uh, with oh. Biden at the uh, early stage of his uh, career, unfortunately. Well, Biden is precious. Indeed. Um, so <laughs> the magnitude of that loss forced many of his religious supporters to start working outside of electoral politics to make their voices heard. Maybe the most influential thing to come out of these religious efforts for McGovern was this group of McGovern-supporting evangelicals that met in a YMCA in Chicago in 1973, the year after the election. It's got very few evangelical preachers, but lots of evangelical academics, theologians, social activists, journalists. Uh, one WAG recently called these people the faculty lounge of American evangelicals. Mm -hmm. Kind of it's, yeah, uh, it's more abstract and intellectual wing. They hammered out a manifesto called the Chicago Declaration of Evangelical Social Conscience, and it's a striking document. Uh, particularly nowadays when we so associate evangelicals with right-wing right. politics. Yeah. So you have people who are just as evangelical, they believe the Bible just as literally, and so on. And collectively, they repent for having neglected the poor, for treating women like second-class citizens, for being silent about racism, for putting their country and its wars before their God. Mm. And one of them, Jim Wallace, started an organization that's still around today called Sojourners. And uh, originally, uh, as a collective, 
the members of Sojourners worked in one of the poorest neighborhoods of D.C. to share life and work collaboratively with people living in those areas. So they're still active, but it's activism of a very different kind. So you had evangelical, Bible-believing Christians meeting together, endorsing mm-hmm. what looked like a very progressive agenda. Yeah. Most people are probably, you know, aware now of the Christian right and as, as a monolithic sort of entity mm-hmm. in the United States because um, it's been on our political scene seemingly overwhelmingly for yeah, it's been over a decade, two decades. One of the big facts of American Three? political life. Evangelicals yeah. are conservative. It's almost a mathematical axiom. Right. And you can't have one without the other. Exactly. And and then those people kind of complicate the story, right. I think, in some really interesting ways. Like a Christian left. Yeah. I, I wonder about that myself. Are they a Christian left? And that's what I find astounding about all of this. McGovern had all those mainline supporters like Jim Armstrong and those evangelical supporters as well, like um, Jim Wallace. I think the key difference is this. Uh, The Christian right uh, tends to view American Christians, particularly white conservative Christians, as the victims of the changes wrought by the 1960s. Having a populist group calling themselves the moral majority, after all, uh, implies that there's an immoral minority Mm -hmm. somewhere that's taken control and has disadvantaged you in some way. So a lot of the anti-elitism we saw in the last election cycle has some roots there. Uh, For this progressive Christianity, they would be more inclined to see Christianity as part of the problem. Hmm. They would see it as having abetted racism. I mean, I study religion and politics for a living, and I probably couldn't name five white evangelicals who were unequivocally supportive of the civil rights movement in the 60s. I just couldn't Hmm. do it. Or having endorsed militarism, or having shuttered itself off in the suburbs. Uh, If you boil it down to the human condition, people just don't want to hear that they themselves are partly at fault for the problem. There's a sense of repentance, I think, and introspection in the Christian left that I think was almost wholly missing from the Christian right. Right. So although Jimmy Carter was himself an evangelical, most evangelical Christians moved in another direction during the late 1970s. By the time we get to 1980, Christianity politicized. Many traditionalist Christians were critical of the growing secularization, that God was losing his place in schools, in government, and public life. The Supreme Court case Engel v. Vitale had ruled against school-led prayer in public schools. Others were concerned about how the Equal Rights Amendment might affect family and gender roles. Andrew Hartman does a great job of explaining these strains of worry and anxiety in his book, A War for the Soul of America. And then, of course, there was abortion. That's very true, and nothing galvanizes the Christian right so quickly as abortion, an issue which, frankly, almost nobody cared about very much prior to the late 1970s, Mm. with the important exception of the Catholic community. I read almost every evangelical periodical out there during the 70s, and whatever they issued uh, the month that Roe v. Wade happened, um, their reaction is an astounding meh. 
Hmm. Uh, they just didn't care that much. Really? Uh, they, they thought of abortion largely as just something Catholics hmm. cared about. And there's still that somewhat, um, I don't want to say anti-Catholic uh, tinge, but a, a little bit of that separation from Catholicism yeah. that's, that's still dominating the evangelicalism at the time. So Francis Schaeffer, one of the leaders of this Christian right, used the term co-belligerence to describe their strategy. Uh, that simply means getting a lot of people angry about the same things in a coordinated way. So the issue of abortion, the role of prayer in schools, all these cultural touchstones catch fire. In more insular communities, suburbs, rural areas, the people who got on board with the program came from all over the spectrum of Christianity. More conservative mainliners, lots of Catholics, evangelicals, of course, Mormons. There's a commonly held belief that America had become a more permissive society to its detriment. So you're getting sort of the other side of that story that Sarah and Elizabeth were telling in the Jane Roe and the Pill episode that we did a couple months mm -hmm. ago. Um, this, the rise of the new right, right? Essentially mm -hmm. in this evangelical movement. So activists like uh, Phyllis Shafley, who you, you know, you're probably familiar with, we talk about her a lot on this mm -hmm. podcast, and her Eagle Forum built what Hartman calls the ecumenical bridge to like-minded conservatives of different religious faiths. Pat Buchanan famously called this a culture of war when he addressed the Republican National Convention in 1992. Yeah, it's frustrating, at least to me. People like Jerry Falwell spent the 1960s criticizing ministers for getting involved in political struggles. He was very critical of people like Martin Luther King or the Southern Christian Leadership Conference for, in his words, politicizing the gospel. Hmm. So his reaction would have been more like, King should be preaching the gospel, he shouldn't be sullying the gospel or compromising the gospel by getting it involved in politics. Mm -hmm. But Falwell goes on to politicize it to, I think, an even greater extent. Mm -hmm. And usually at cross-purposes of the things Dr. King valued. So the Christian right seems to have won the public debate over what Christianity should look like in the public sphere at least if we measure it in terms of persuading voters and winning elections. But how does social justice create Christianity then, the sort of progressive Christianity, the Christian left, how does that matter today? Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things happening, I think, at this time. Uh, one, I think, and it'll take many years to see whether my hunch is right, is that many young Christians who identify with social justice causes. Uh, maybe some of the people who are marching um, uh, against fascism in the mm -hmm. last couple days from uh, when we're recording this podcast, uh, I think more and more those people will have trouble identifying as evangelicals mm. in the long run. They'll use maybe more vague terminology like follower of Christ or something like that to describe their own religious worldview. And increasingly, I think evangelicalism may very well end up being a smaller and smaller circle. They are, um, rightly or wrongly, hemorrhaging the young yeah. at this point. So yeah. certainly I think that's one big trend to look at in terms of how this plays out. Yeah, so almost creating a fourth category yeah. of Christians. So beyond the mainliners, the evangelicals, and the Catholics, you'll have this 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Followers of Christ or whatever. And that's why I love studying history because the categories we use can sometimes erode over time, mm -hmm. and we watch that happen in real time. So when I look at where um, young people with more conservative theology might be, I think of someone like um, Nadia Bowles Weber's church okay. in uh, Colorado. Are you familiar with it? No. Oh, she has a, a church called the House of All Saints and Sinners, or maybe it's Sinners and Saints. And uh, Bowles Weber is a Lutheran pastor uh, with, with the trademark hipster glasses. <laughs> and her body is covered with tattoos. She awesome. swears like a sailor. Cool. And her church caters to more marginalized groups. They actively seek out former drug addicts, hmm. um, the chronically unemployed, uh, people who are very poor. And I, and this is more anecdotal, I think, than anything, but I think we're watching younger persons of faith identify more with that hmm. worldview. They're becoming less and less institutional. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it'll be very fascinating, I think, to see how all of this plays out in yeah. some ways. I agree. So, I mean, I guess we can talk about how, I mean, there's some parallels here, mm -hmm. obviously, with the last election cycle yeah. and the epic fail of the Democratic Party to, I don't know, succeed yes. in any way, and, mm -hmm. and the surprising, but maybe not surprising, troubling win mm -hmm. of Donald Trump. So, how does the whole religious, how do you think the whole religious question fits in with how Hillary approached her campaign, how yeah. Donald Trump approached, approached his campaign. Right. I mean, um, so much of the oxygen in public discourse has been taken up and consumed by the proud, belligerent, unrepentant Trump voter. Right. Uh, so I think it'll be interesting to observe and look at a group that I'm more inclined to call the, the reluctant Trump voter. People mm. who just couldn't bring themselves to pull the lever for Hillary for whatever reason, yeah. voted for Donald Trump and took a long, deep, contemplative shower <laughs> afterward. Um, yeah. So that's certainly one element that I think uh, we'll look at. But yeah, uh, I, I was surprised at how poorly Hillary had engaged with the religious community, especially mm. because, and many people don't know this, and in some ways it's her campaign's fault that we don't know it, uh, Hillary was a very active lay Methodist. Uh, her entire, yeah, her, her, her entire um, worldview came from meeting a social gospel minister, not unlike McGovern's college huh. professors, um, when, when she was um, in high school. Huh. And yeah, so... Um, that didn't communicate for whatever reason. Uh, Hillary is very conversant on uh, religious discourse. She has a history of, I, I think she taught Sunday school like Jimmy Carter for a while. Really? And that just didn't communicate um, in any discernible way. And, and yet, conversely, you look at the other side, right? We, we saw repeatedly Donald Trump fail to communicate any religious knowledge at all. He, right. he famously... Um, talked about Bible books that didn't exist, like 2 Corinthians, uh, <laughs> kind of family. 2 Corinthians, yeah. yeah, that's the whole ball game. You mm. could just kind of watch him talk about something he, he wasn't at all familiar with, and yeah. in the end that didn't matter. Didn't matter at all. At all, right. right. You had all these evangelical pastors uh, endorsing him. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Jerry Falwell's son endorses him. Mm. Um, I'm pretty sure... Um, Figures like Pat Buchanan endorsed him. Um, 
Weirdly, Donald Trump's personal spiritual advisor is, uh, I'll need to look up the, uh, her name afterwards, but she's the wife of Journey's keyboard player. What? So yeah, that, that, that kind of famous piano riff uh, from Don't Stop Believin'. Yeah, yeah. yeah, his wife is Donald Trump's uh, that's weird. personal <laughs> pastor. It is weird. Um, so yeah, there was this um, morality that didn't communicate. Uh, no. And I think part of that is that there's this intense introspection within mainline schools of thought, mm -hmm. like Hillary's uh, Methodism, where people are reluctant to talk about their faith in public, or they don't have practice talking about it. Uh, Jimmy Carter was an evangelical, and using language like, I am a born-again Christian, yeah. uh, I, I have been changed because of my relationship with Christ, that is as natural as breathing in and out for mm -hmm. an evangelical. For a mainliner, um, they struggle to find that language. Uh, there's almost uh, an embarrassment of talking about it, that, that mm -hmm. sense of it's not polite to talk about religion in public. So uh, in the end, that may have cost her. I mean, I, I was expecting evangelicals to vote for Donald Trump heavily, but losing mainline Protestants, this kind of more, yeah. uh, I almost want to say country club branch of American Protestantism mm. that put more emphasis on uh, decorum and knowledge and competence. Watching that block go Shit. for the Donald yeah. Yeah. was, I think, much more surprising, yeah. at least for me. No, I would, I would agree. That was probably one of the more shocking elements of this. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was strange to watch uh, the election happen in Singapore. Oh, I, I bet. How, yeah. how did people, I just, I mean, not even related to this, how did they react? Yeah, I, um, it was astonishing. Uh, because we're 12 hours ahead of the East Coast, Yeah. your election night is our election morning. Oh, so it's goodness. Tuesday night in America, people are turning on the TVs, watching the results come in, and it's Monday morning in Singapore. Oh, so I had to teach an 8.30 class that morning as the results are first trickling in. Oh, I went and watched the results uh, come in with one of my colleagues, was shocked. Yeah. Because, I mean, Hillary had been declining a little bit in the polls, but most of us expected her to yeah. limp across the finish line. Uh, and we saw Donald Trump had gotten elected. And then I have to go and teach a 3.30 class. <laughs> and what was really difficult, at least for me, was that particular class I was talking about, I was kind of finishing my second wave feminism lecture and segueing into <sighs> the LGBT movement. Mm -hmm. And I, I held myself together pretty well that day on the whole. But there was this moment where I had to talk about Shirley Chisholm's mm campaign for president. Mm -hmm. uh, some of your, your viewers uh, and listeners may know that uh, Shirley Chisholm was the first black woman to run for president. Also in, in 72, she was one of McGovern's uh, opponents. And there was just this moment where I really wanted to, I had always envisioned giving that lecture and saying, and now a woman has been elected yeah. president and a black person has been elected president and watching that kind of slip away. Mm -hmm. And I, I I'm not ashamed to say I started tearing up a little bit. That oh, was yeah. a very hard uh, lecture to give. But yeah, Singapore was astounded by this as much as anything. They're, they're a very much a country that focuses on uh, decorum. And uh, there, there's almost this strong Confucian element. Singapore's about maybe 65-70% uh, Chinese by ethnicity. Hmm. So watching someone belittle opponents and things of that nature, talk about sexually assaulting women. Right. Uh, and, and to watch that person get elected. Uh, as strange as that was, as surreal as that was in America, it was surrealism squared yeah. from a Singaporean perspective. Yeah. Absolutely. To look on that and, yeah, yeah and yeah, oh my God. 
Think about all your partners in, sure. in America and who did they vote for. Yeah, so uh, yeah. How, if I can ask, how was the reaction in the U.S. Oh since my God. I was away? Well, or your, the particular sliver of the U.S. That... Yeah, so I mean, when the election results came in, I also had to teach and I was teaching fascism that week, so... <laughs> <laughs> Well, I started to cry immediately oh. when I sat in my first class, my first world history class. It was it was a, it was a rough lecture to give. Sure, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, uh, that's kind of the sense I got from from my academic friends here yeah. in the U.S. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just remarkable, remarkable times that we are living in. But and they continue to be. I mean, obviously, fascism. It's certainly not dead. And this is sort of the conversation that we've been seeing on social media and in mm-hmm. the news that, mm-hmm. oh, that's not our America. But of course it is. Yes, it is. This is this is who voted for Donald Trump. It's not like it's not like we, we didn't sure sh- sure we didn't, and, we and, and we seeing and seeing violence and racial intimidation as aberrations to the American experience right. is is I think mistaken. There there's a yeah. larger history, and I mean, if Sarah were here, I'm sure she could talk about um, mm-hmm. the intimidation that accompanied Reconstruction yeah. and um, so-called restoration mm-hmm. um, in the uh, post-Civil War South. Uh, yeah, there's there's just all these... And there are self-proclaimed, whatever, neo-Nazis, as sure. if... And people seem to be latching onto that, as if Nazism is this outside thing mm-hmm. that has just been imported into America. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. these are Confederates, right? These are people who want the South rise again and for slavery to be returned or whatever, or something ridiculous like that. Sure. Um, there, there was, there was that great line about the Confederate flag being the ultimate participation trophy. Right. Um, in some ways. So, yeah. Um, in the same way that America runs on Duncan, um, mm. I, I think the civil yeah. rights movement ran on hope. So, yeah. uh, while, while it's perfectly fair and perfectly legitimate to focus on how bad things seem now, all these things in the news uh, that uh, frighten us and horrify us. Um, I, I was encouraged to see so many people resisting those marches yeah, in Charlottesville. Quickly. And if yeah. you look at the pictures, you won't have to go through very many of them to see all these clerical robes mm. um, from evangelical churches and from mainline churches and Catholicism and yeah. from uh, a wide array of faiths outside of Christianity as well. While I do worry a, a lot about yeah. where things are headed, that does give me a strong sense of hope, not an inevitability right. of justice prevailing, or however you want to define it, but a sense of being sustained, of working towards uh, this effort. Yeah. So, and I hope that those same people who had to take long contemplative showers after they voted for Trump are again taking long contemplative showers and rethinking, you know, maybe party lines aren't the way to vote. Sure. And, you know, in the same way that disco is the 70s yeah. and, you know, yuppies are the 80s, maybe maybe the 2010s will be the contemplative shower <laughs> decade. That could be a clean start. Yeah. Ah, 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 whoa. <laughs> I love it. That's uh, great. We need to copyright this. We do. Before we wrap up, mm-hmm. we should probably, you know, collapse our story on George McGovern. We should. Um... So what happened to our story's almost hero? Two years after the presidential election, McGovern was re-elected to his Senate seat, but lost during the election after that, which fell during uh, the, Ronald, the Reagan Revolution of 1980. He went on to debate conservatives across U.S. campuses and television programs, including Barry Goldwater and Cal Thomas. He worked with another unsuccessful presidential candidate, Bob Dole, 
and that work actually led to SNAP benefits, mm-hmm. um, which so many Americans today rely on for food security, as well as the special supplemental food program for women, infants, and children. And with that strong pedigree in feeding the hungry uh, in mind, Bill Clinton appointed McGovern as the UN ambassador for food and agriculture. But often, McGovern was happy as ever in his hometown of Mitchell, South Dakota, and took an active part in campus events at his alma mater, Dakota Wesleyan University. In 2006, the George and Eleanor McGovern Center opened on that campus, focusing on a commitment to social justice and public service. While he accomplished much in those years, his post-Senate career was marred by tragedy as well. His daughter, Terry, died from complications of alcoholism in 1994, as did his son Stephen in July of 2012. Senator McGovern himself died not long after in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, in October of 2012, just a few weeks before Barack Obama's re-election. But I think there's this kind of almost poetic justice in him passing away when he did. If you look at Obama's victory in 2012, two political scientists call it George McGovern's revenge. Because it's an evolutionary improvement on the kinds of people George McGovern won in 1972. Young college activists, Mm -hmm. black Americans, Hispanic Americans, single women, the LGBT community. Mm -hmm. And by 2012, those demographics kind of evolved and grew and gained a certain political skill. Well, thanks, Mark, for joining us today. Thank you so much. It was really great to be on this podcast. And uh, again, I'm just so uh, delighted that we've got some Buffalo people doing uh, good historical work such as this. We appreciate the sentiment, and uh, we're glad we caught you before you headed back across the big pond Mm -hmm. and then the other big pond to Singapore. Thank you very much. Uh, So for all the women historians at DIG and our special guest, I'm Avril. And I'm Mark Lemke. And uh, thanks for joining us. This podcast was produced by the historians of DIG, Elizabeth Garner-Masaryk, Sarah Hanley-Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. You can find show notes and further reading as well as the archive for the History Buffs podcast at digpodcast.org. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest at dig underscore history and on Facebook at digpodcast. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.